You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the ComicsXF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the writer of comics like Dawn Runner, The One Hand, Universal Monsters, Creatures from the Black Lagoon Lives, Rare Flavors, and Detective Comics, Rom V. Rom, <laughs> how do you have time to talk to us? You're writing too many comics. I mean, um, this, someone someone mentioned to me last week that everywhere they turned it was like, oh, Ram V's on another podcast doing another interview. It's like my it's like my two month window where I'm allowed to talk to other people because the rest of the ten months I'm spending making comics quietly in my corner. So. <laughs> It, it's like it's like the reverse of winter usually that's a period of hibernation but you've 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 come out you've emerged from your your creative cave to uh see if there's any food left over <laughs> yeah yeah i mean talk about talk about being a lazy guy right like i hibernate for like 80 percent of the year so <laughs> oh man well before we get into everything uh as always, I find myself distracted by the surroundings of the people that we talk to. And of course, the listeners love that in an audio medium. But mm. uh, tell me about all the record frames that you have filled with art behind you. Yeah, they're all, I mean, they started out, I started out with five, maybe six of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all covers slash artwork from books that I've worked on. Um, and I've just kind of made it uh, a pro progress wall if you will, as things go on. So I've got little images of uh, all the books that I've worked on so far. You know, there's there's Vigil, These Seven Shores, Parody, So, Graffiti's Wall, whatnot. There's a there's a Batman up there from Martin Simmons. There's one up there from Evan Cagle. So uh, yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting because I talk to people on, on Zoom and they're always like, oh yeah, you've made some progress over the past couple of years. So it becomes a, <laughs> becomes a nice talking point. And then I joke that, it also becomes a weird sort of OCD motivator to to do more work because I can't leave empty gaps on my wall. So, <laughs> but eventually you are going to run out of wall. <laughs> well, no, there's three more, so we'll see how long I can keep it going. So, uh, as 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 Matt said in introducing you, you do have a lot of stuff coming out right now. Uh, you know. And, and, you know, especially between stuff like Rare Flavors, One Hand, Dawn Runner, you know, it feels like you're trying to do some creator-owned statement books, or at least those books are all coming out at the same time. You know, is it is it the timing of when these things were ready to publish and publishers had holes in their schedule? Like, I... How did how did it how when, did when it these things in? come out is always different from, like, when you're writing them. So I guess I, I, I kind of yeah. wanted to see what the timeline is for you. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it depends on so many factors, right? Uh, a lot of it has to do with how busy I am as well. So, my, uh, you know, whereas, you know, five years ago, I might have been able to script two issues of a creator on thing every month. <laughs> now I do maybe one issue every two months. So um, that takes time, obviously. But uh, largely, it's also the artists and their schedules. And, and I'm on the monthly stuff. I get it. You know, come on get five pages done every week, put it out because it's got to go out on this date. Um, and, and you know, there's a charm to that when you're working with DC and Marvel and stuff like that. But when you're doing your creator own stuff, I don't see any point in kind of pushing your artists to deliver a page that they aren't 
necessarily feeling happy about. So sometimes pages come in three a week. Sometimes they come in one every two weeks. And that's okay um, as long as, you know, you're making progress, as long as you're, you're developing things. Um, Dawn Runner specifically, I think we've been working on for a very long time, uh, largely due to my own tardiness, but also we started working on it pre-COVID. And uh, mm -hmm. during COVID, you know, the publishing schedule was put on pause. So we all took on different work, more work, uh, but we never let go of this book. So it's kind of been simmering away, simmering away in the background as we did other comics. Um, and then once we had about three or four issues done, we went to Dark Runs and said, hey, look, we're ready to solicit now. And um, five years from when we started it, it's finally coming out. So, <laughs> What are the challenges and advantages of of flooding the zone with rom as it were because you 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 know you've got kind of books at like almost every publisher going on right now yeah i mean i didn't really um i don't i don't really i'm not as machiavellian as i as i uh sound sound like um because i didn't really plan it this way um it just kind of happened and and um yeah, I could space it out. I could delay things further and say, okay, we would put this out at this time. But to my mind, that's all sort of short-term thinking, right? Um, mm. Long-term, what matters is people are still picking up Blue and Green. People are still picking up These Savage Shores. People are still mm. picking up Layla Star. And to me, I'm just building a library. And, and, and I would, my aim is when I sort of hang up my pen and paper uh when i hang up my pen and paper i suppose uh i want to look back and and look at a shelf and go like okay that's a that's a significant body of work um and yeah that's kind of always been the aim so i don't really plan much beyond that in terms of like oh am i flooding the market blah 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 blah. yeah that most is going to make a difference of a few copies here and there but I think largely people gravitate towards good work and it doesn't matter. The good work comes out in February or it comes out in June or it comes out in November. Anyway, that's what I like to tell myself. So. <laughs> so what do you look for in a relationship with a publisher besides the obvious prompt payment? Um, I think I want my publishers as, as, I've sort of grown uh, in the industry over time. I think I've, initially I was just like, hey, can, can I publish with every publisher? Let's see what it's like. Um, but I think as I've spent more time in the industry, uh, you want the publisher to care about fundamentally the same things that you care about. Not ne necessarily there is some distinction there, like they're going to care about sales, they're going to care mm -hmm. about marketing. And I do care about those things, but they're not... Um, they're not the the foremost in my in my list of things that I'm paying attention to. I'm paying attention to the quality of the work, the writing, the story, um, its meaning, its impact, uh, and it's nice to work with publishers where there is an understanding that okay, these are the things that eventually matter to to creators. Um, yes, I like to get paid on time. No, I don't work with publishers who don't pay on time. Uh, but that's all part of the professionalism of it. Like that's the bare minimum you would expect of any publisher. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it should not even be a consideration. Uh, if you call yourself a publisher, you should be paying people on time. Um, 
beyond that, I think uh, I've also learned that some publishers are invested in your future um, as a creator. Uh, they want to see you succeed as much as they want to succeed the, themselves. And then there are other publishers who want to succeed, but want to keep you in your place, quote unquote. Um, and so, yeah, obviously you want to work with someone who who is uh, happy to see you grow uh, and and understands that it's a relationship where both people are there because they want to be, not because one needs to and the other wants to use them, you know? So. Mm -hmm. How do you keep from spreading yourself too thin? You know, are you good at pumping the brakes or do you have someone in your life who's kind of good at helping you and you need to maybe take a step back? Um, to be honest, uh, I'm a kid. Uh, I get very enthusiastic about things and then I get very tired and I get very cranky. And I don't <laughs> think that's changed uh, uh, for, for over three or four decades now. So um, I wish I knew the answer. But uh, I think of late, you know, you, your creative soul is very good at communicating to you. And it's very good at telling you that, why are you doing this? Why are you uh, um, sort of, you know, grinding yourself down to nothing? Um, and, you know, you create things, especially if you're any good at it, you're doing it because it's exciting to you first, uh, before it's exciting to anyone else. And when you're doing too much, you know, too much of anything causes a kind of disillusion and then a lack of excitement. And when that's there, uh, your your mind knows to recognize it. Um, obviously, the, the only thing you need then is to be in tune to that voice rather than other voices that are telling you, oh, yeah, you have to do, you know, so many books a year or you have to succeed or you have to. Um, so, yeah, just listening to your creative voice, um, but also making allowances for your creative enthusiasm, I suppose, is a balance. So, uh, listeners, this is going to be a great episode for those of you who are fans of the part where Matt reads the solicit blurb, because that's going to happen a few times uh, <laughs> in, the, in the next little bit. So first up, we're going to focus on the one hand, which is out now as this episode drops. Uh, drawn by Lawrence Campbell, colored by Lee Lawfridge, lettered by Aditya Bidikar, and designed by Tom Muller. Neo-Novena detective Ari Nasser is about to retire with an enviable record until a brutal murder occurs bearing the hallmarks of the one-hand killer, which should be impossible since Ari already put him away not once, but twice in the years before. What follows is a deadly cat-and-mouse game as Ari pursues his qu quarry down the rain-soaked streets of Neonavina. Ari will stop at nothing to unravel the secrets and ciphers of this case, but each revelation only leads further into the dark heart of this future metropolis and Ari's own beleaguered soul. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what is the origin of this project? The origin of this project is reading... Cormac McCarthy's Sunset Limited and listening to a podcast about post-war societies uh, and then having that idea soup turn into turn into something that I had to I called up so actually you know not to give too much away but this but this project involves two books 
the, mm-hmm. the one hand uh, is is one book and and the six fingers uh, is another book um so it's a cat mouse game but you're reading the cat in one book and you're reading the mouse in the other if you will um and so moment i had that idea of doing that sort of frashomon-esque dual narrative uh i think it was 4 a.m one morning that i that i dm'd dan waters and i went i have an idea can you talk about it now and then 4 a.m in the morning we had a phone call where i pitched essentially this idea to him and at the time obviously uh, i had some idea of what i wanted to do with the with the cat of it all but i had no idea and I didn't want to have an idea about what to do with the mouse of it all. Um, and so I asked Dan, hey, would you like to write this? And it would be a genuine collaboration because I don't know what you're going to write. And we're going to figure this out as we each write our narrative. Um, but here's the here's the truth that lies at the helical heart of this dual narrative. Um, and if we're able to pull it off, we will have told essentially three stories in two books. Yeah, I'd kind of wondered if you know there had been discussion of who was writing who, if it was just the fate accompli that yeah, Dan, you're the one who'll get into the mind of the serial killer. Uh, partly yes, but also, um, yeah. Again, without giving too much away, mm. um, I think the 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 fundamental desire with these books was that can i make the readers um detectives as much as the characters themselves like you have to put the pieces together you have to decide what's true and what's not you have to decide which version of events you believe um and because it was that way i'm always a big fan of the the form transcending the bounds of of a book uh if you're trying to do something with the story then you should be doing it with the book you should be doing it with the cover you should be doing it with, with the way it's printed the way it's published and so you should also be doing it with the way it's made and i genuinely wanted this to be a cool i'm trying to track down this killer that i don't know what his next move is going to be and i and i genuinely wanted dan's experience to be I am genuinely trying to, again, follow follow the clues that that my killer experiences, but also trying to run from this shadow that's chasing me. Uh, and and I think, hopefully, I mean, at the end of issue one, you see us use some of that uh, to to great effect. But also, uh, I think once you once you read through two or three issues, you'll start seeing how these two narratives kind of push and pull at each other. Publishing through image, you're responsible for a lot more of the back end stuff. Is that more important or necessary when you're putting out two series simultaneously with an intertwined narrative? Like, like how did that kind of help it help things, I guess? Yeah, I mean, especially when what you're doing with the book outside of making the story itself also matters to the experience of the book, then you kind of want to have control over that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think with a publisher like Image, you have that because it lit- quite literally is up to you when things come out, uh, where they sit in the publishing schedule, uh, how they're made, what previews are shown in what book. Uh, and 
uh, frankly, uh, it, it's also a case of sort of least resistance, right? So, so image doesn't have the the tiers of communications that you need to go through before you get to someone who can actually make a decision on a book. Um, and so I think, especially with things like this that are trying to push the format, trying to push the form, uh, it's very useful to to publish with image. So you, you Dan, obviously, and you are, are part of the, the White Noise Collective of writers, and you guys have been sort of friends and associates and, and colleagues for, for years now. Uh, but is, it, is this the first time that you've collaborated sort of this closely or on the same project or on two, you know, ad adjacent projects uh, like this with, with one of the other ones? Yeah, Dan and I certainly, yes. Uh, I know other, I know Alex and Dan, for instance, have collaborated on things before. Um, but I think this kind of a collaboration where you really have the freedom to do what you want while being completely aware that whatever you want to do has a indelible effect on whatever your collaborator wants to do. Uh, I think that's more interesting to me than this sort of, okay, we're both writing a script or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and so I think in that sense, uh, it has been much more of an intellectual collaboration than, than a collaboration of, of method, if you will. Um, and so uh, in that sense, yeah, this is the first time that we're collaborating on that level together, but it is exactly as I thought it was going to be. I know Dan very well. Uh, Dan knows me quite well. Uh, and, you know, you it's easier to collaborate with someone when you admire how they think. So, yeah, that's been the experience. And, and it's been a it's been a joy. Um, several pub visits, uh, several, several pints down uh, as we feverishly plot and outline uh, while people stare at us like what the hell is going on um <laughs> but yeah no it's it's been great um and i have to mention uh you know sumit being in india is a little harder to collaborate with but lawrence who's been the artist on, on my book has also been quite similar he's always you know taken the time to come down to london and hang out with me and dan and talk story and talk what we want to do with it so i think the art also uh kind of plays its role in that in that collaborative form. How much of the other book at, at any point was a mystery to you? You know, are, are you are you two writing sort of more or less on top of each other or to make a very lame and expected pun? You know, is there any point where the one hand doesn't know what the six fingers are doing? Yes. I mean, that, that was very much the aim. Um, it's not that the one hand doesn't know as much as when I am writing, I am trying not to consider what Dan is going to do or has done in his book um, until it comes to a point where the story requires that I need to know. Uh, so, so one of the things we've done is each issue uh, has one scene that is visually uh, shown from opposing perspectives, but the scene is common to both narratives. Mm -hmm. um, and that stuff, yeah, you require coordination. Or later on, there's a point where the characters speak. And so that scene obviously has to happen in both books. Uh, and so when that happens, that kind of stuff 
takes coordination. But beyond that, the, the plot itself has been a case of, okay, here's a, here's the baseline I'm going to play. What's your riff on top of this? And then Dan comes back with, okay, cool. This is what I'm doing with the riff. What's your melody? And so it's been that kind of a layered story building process. You have, you guys brought in Tom Muller for design and, yeah. you know, I, I remember when, when House of X and Powers of 10 dropped, you know, the fun thing the fans spent time doing was translating the Krakoan alphabet that he helps concoct. Uh, here, you guys are dealing with a series of, of glyphs of these square symbols that are obviously supposed to be a, a code of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, are these or, or, or will these symbols at any point be translatable by the reader? Um. We initially started off with that idea, but to be very honest, it felt a little bit, um, it felt like it betrayed what that cipher actually is. I, I think part of its point is that it is meant to be ununderstandable by certain kinds of people uh, and very much understandable by other kinds of people. Uh, and, and, uh, I think betraying that to make it sort of translatable and have people figure that out would have been, uh, yeah, would have been a, a gimmick that had no purpose in the story. So we didn't uh, eventually do that. But I think the roots of the design still lay within the alphabet as we know it, because in the end, Tom is still a human being designing uh, a, a cipher. Um, but yeah, I think, and, and, also to speak a little bit more about Tom's work, um, these books are very design heavy books. Um, not only does the cipher appear, you know, in its form on, on the, on the wall, but there's also this sense of a design that, that pervades the entire world that, that these stories exist in it's kind of overarching grand design or insidious design, if you will. Um, depending on how the story uh, unfolds. So I think working that in uh, and being clever with it was very important. And, you know, Tom's work is just brilliant. Um, it also does this wonderful thing of unifying the two books without the creators having to go like, oh yes, these two books are supposed to be read together. Um, and so that kind of having that kind of visual language that translates across two different stories um, is is was super important and and so Tom uh, I think is very much part of why these books feel like they belong next to each other. When you're setting a story in the future, how do you go about picking the specific year? Because obviously that says a lot about how you want the future to look. You know what technological leaps need to be made, how much environmental disaster you want to comment on, how dystopic things need to feel, etc. I mean, in this case, it was particularly easy because uh, I used the setting and and timeline more as a question than as a than as an answer. Um, so, ideally, the reader is looking at this and going, "Wait, that doesn't make sense. Why is it like that?" And if it does that, then I've done my job. So. Um, yeah, saying anything else is going to give away why I did it. So <laughs> gotcha. uh, you'll see. <laughs>
Um, obviously, the ideal is is someone who is interested will read both series and piece clues together from both ends. But you know, let, let's say someone has enough budget for one book and they've chosen the one hand. Uh, mm. First off, congratulations, you win. Uh, you've beaten Dan in that case. But uh, you know, how much did you talk about the idea that some people might only read one book or the other? Yeah, I mean, the idea, the structural idea for this actually came from um, going to uh, a, a theater performance here performed by a group called Punch Drunk. Um, what they do is immersive theater. Essentially, they take over a warehouse uh, and then you're supposed to walk into this place and they're they're performing the play, but they do a very interesting thing. There is no distinction between the viewer and the performer. You could literally walk into the middle of the performance and as long as you're kind of not in the way, they, they request you to not be in the way, um, but the actors kind of perform around you and you wear these Venetian masks and the idea is that you cannot be seen or perceived by the actors. So they're, they're acting as they would naturally. Um, the other very interesting thing is half the crowd starts off at one end of the warehouse the other half starts off at the other end of the warehouse. And you are allowed to wander wherever you want to wander. So whoever you want to follow, which room, whichever room you want to go into, you go into. So unless you spent an extraordinary amount of time in the warehouse watching the same performance three times over, nobody has a complete picture of what the story is. But at the end of each show, Everyone you went with, and, and you usually go with a group of three or four friends, and you are split at the very beginning. Two of you will go to one end, two of you will go to the other. By the end of the show, everyone meets at the bar, and you sit down, and you start talking about what you saw. And the story, and, and you, you, you understand what the story is because the human brain wants to create patterns, right? Very fundamental visual experiment. If, you, if you've seen the Mona Lisa, and you pixelate it down to uh, a ridiculously low resolution, the brain will still go, oh yeah, that's the Mona Lisa. You don't need the detail information, you just need the insinuation of a pattern. Uh, and, and stories work much the same way, in that if you have enough pieces, you will create a relationship between all of them. Uh, and, and if you then start thinking about stories that way, essentially, Ideally, what happens is two people read two different things and end up with two different pictures. And then they talk to each other. And the meshing of those two pictures, an entirely third picture em emerges, right? Um, that's kind of the endeavor. So when someone reads one book, they're still going to form a picture in their mind. It is still a complete story. We believe there still are enough pieces for you to go, okay, this is what happened. And then say two years down the line, you realize, oh, these are connected books and now a collected edition is coming out. Let me read that. And you read that. And all of a sudden, your brain reconfigures what you thought was true, which if you think about it, is much how uh, much like how a detective works. You get some clues, you draw some conclusions on the basis of those clues, and hopefully you are right. Then as the story goes on, you get more clues and perhaps they reframe what you thought your assumptions were at the, at the very beginning. So each time you are confronted with more information, your picture in your mind of what happened changes. And I think 
that is such a great way to tell a detective story. So that's kind of the endeavor. So someone who reads one book is still going to get a relatively full story. They may not get the complete intended effect of reading both books, but they will get a story nonetheless. What is what is something the Six Fingers team did in their first issue? Uh, nothing spoilery, obviously, but uh, that you absolutely loved there or, you know, just surprised you in a great way. A um, couple of things. Uh, there's a there's a bit in there with um, clocks and and looking for your for your missing father. I think that was such a wonderful character crinkle to add that affects the story in ways I didn't see when the first issue was being written, um, both at my end and at dance. And then the other thing, which is a much more obvious thing, is the very title, The Six Fingers. Uh, I had no idea there was going to be that sort of a, a mutation six finger coming up until we started talking about the issues and we said, okay, why don't we do this, like a physical mutation? And and we didn't even have the titles until that part had come in. And so the titles literally exist because um, of that storytelling move, which was entirely Dan's creation. So, so the, uh, the next book we're going to talk about is Dawn Runner, which launches mm -hmm. March 20th from Dark Horse with artist Evan Cagle, colorist Dave Stewart, and uh, letter again, uh, Did You Bid a Car? Yep. Matt? <laughs> a century ago, a portal opened over Central America, and the Tetsa that came through changed the world. Now the world bends all its efforts to making the Iron Kings, giant mechs that must battle the Tetsa for hum humanity's continued survival in gladiatorial combat. Anita Marr is the greatest of the pilots and is chosen to pilot a new prototype that could change the tide of humanity's favor. So uh, this is uh, Evan Cagle, uh, who we mentioned, uh, who also has done the covers for your run of Detective Comics. Yep. Uh, now, apparently you and Evan have been working on this for, uh, you know, long before Years, you started yeah. on Detectives. That that changes things a little bit. But I, I, my general question here is, you know, how do you know when you and an artist have clicked to the point where you know you want to work together on, on, on a second or, 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 you know, whatever project? Well, I mean, there are traits that you that you gravitate towards. I don't even want to say look for because that makes you sound like you're you're sort of evil scout sitting in the sitting sitting on the bleachers looking at players going you know performing or something. But I don't think it's anything as as nearly as Machiavellian as that. I think you gravitate towards people because they look at their own work a certain way. Uh, and I think it was very evident from the first couple of conversations I had with Evan that he thought of his work in a, in a way that I could relate to and I could understand and I could appreciate. Um, it's still very different from the way I look at my work, but it has, uh, to, be, to be very uh, simplistic, it has that same level of excitement and obsession about your own work. Um, is not Evan doesn't need his work to be seen by other people and then you know celebrated. Uh, it's nice to have, but 
what excites him is like, oh man, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to put these lines on this paper and it's going to look great. Uh, and I think that is a beautiful and rare thing to find in your collaborators, um, people who are very excited by the act of creating something. Uh, and you mentioned Aditya before, um, who's worked across most of my books at this, create, certainly create our own books at this point, maybe with the exception of Later Star. Um, and Aditya is very much like that. Someone who just has joy in like, oh, look, I picked this font. I made this box and I put this here and I did this little neat trick. Mm. Um, and you want that. You want that kind of energy when you're creating something because it's easy to have energy when everyone's celebrating your work or everyone's appreciating it or everyone's talking about it. It's very difficult to have that energy when you're on page 45 of a 170 page project uh, and it's already been two and a half years. And so um, unless your collaborators have that kind of energy to keep you consistently excited about the work as well, uh, you're not really going to get very far. Um, and so that's kind of the collaborators that I look for. And, and very early on, it was very evident with, with Evan that it was going to be that kind of collaboration. Um, Interestingly, uh, it's nice to know that Evan felt this way as well, because um, I had seen this illustration that Evan had done called Golgotha, which had a giant mech and a, and a young man standing in front of it in its storm. It was beautiful. And I said, oh, man, I would love to do a mech kaiju kind of comic with this guy one day. I will get in touch. I've you know made a little note to myself. And then... Uh, we, I follow, I believe I followed him on Twitter uh, and then he followed me back. And then at some point out of completely out of nowhere, he met, he emailed me and went, I just read Graffiti's Wall, uh, which was a book I did with Anand Radhakrishnan. He said, <laughs> it was so great. I, I can't remember reading something that affected me so much on reading. I think you guys did, did an amazing uh, uh, job with it. I would love to collaborate at some point. So I was just like, man, what, what kind of odd serendipity but i think <laughs> that's the thing like people you know you're going to get along with kind of tend to gravitate towards each other certainly creatively you do given given the timeline of this project were there periods where you had to rescue dawn runner from a back burner from which it might not have returned no not really because i think uh although i say you know it it, it release was staggered by the fact that the the pandemic hit and uh dark horse publishing went on went on pause mm -hmm. uh, and so evan and i just went okay cool let's do other things as well um and then what happened since then is essentially evan and i have collaborated consistently maybe not on downrunner but on the issue of catwoman that he did with me on the on the um uh detective covers on leila star covers so We've always been in touch. We've always been collaborating. And uh, yeah, maybe the pace on on Dawn Runner took a hit, but I don't think there was any significant period of time where we did we weren't communicating about some collaboration or the other. So it never really felt like uh, we uh, as collaborators went on the back burner. Maybe the project did, but um, that's not as much of a bad thing as you might imagine. Um, as long as you're you're talking, you're making things together. Certainly. So uh, 
Dark Horse is is building this book uh, as as all ages. Was that a particular world that you were looking to conquer that you hadn't dipped a toe into yet? I mean, to be very honest, uh, I don't know how all ages this is going to end up being. So good luck, Dark Horse, with that solicit. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess it's all ages. I guess I guess there's nothing egregious in there. You might scare a kid or two, but uh, otherwise, I think it should be all right. Uh, no, there wasn't. There wasn't any sort of overt intention to to try and uh, you know hit a market or something like that. I don't really think of my work that way at all. I don't think about markets. I don't think about readerships. It's always funny, you know. I, I talk to people for advice on publishing sometimes, and the first question they always ask, like, "Okay, cool. Who are your readers? Who is this market for?" And I just go like. Anyone who wants to read a good story. Um, and it's so antithetical, but it's also why I'm not a publisher and, and I'm a creator. And I think that distinction is important. Um, I think if you wear the other hat for too long, then then your head only fits that hat and it doesn't come back to fit into this one, this much weirder hat. So um yeah, so really it has it, there was no sort of design or intention to do that. Uh, the only thing that was done by design was to go, cool, we're going to take the existing mecha kaiju genre um, and then we're going to do our twist on it. We're going to do something that I don't think has been done with it. So, uh, Do you have a favorite piece of, of mech media across, you know? Yeah, yes. I mean, several, to be honest. Uh uh, my earliest memory is um, watching black and white uh, reruns on Indian television of Johnny Sacco and his giant robot, uh, which was this incredibly old black and white, low budget. There's clearly a guy in a cardboard costume uh, kind of kind of uh, a show, but it fascinated me to no end. I used to come back. I used to mark the time and watch the TV show. And then obviously, um, when when I discovered anime, uh, yeah, they, there were there were quite a few. Again, um, I think Grandizer uh, was one of these sort of older ones. Robotech was uh, one of the more influential ones. Uh, Evangelion. Then after that, uh, and and yeah, I mean it's, it's something that. I've continued to have an interest in, uh, but really the interest for this story was only peaked after I watched both Pacific Rim and Arrival. Uh, and for one reason, for some reason, I watched them like within weeks of each other. Um, and my brain just went, what if we take, I mean, this has been obviously very obviously done in anime, but I don't think it was ever been done in 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 comics um is we said i went what if we take this genre with its very genre expectations and and its uh, uh structural format and then we apply literary hard sci-fi uh preoccupations to it so what does it look like when we're doing mecha kaiju big giant gladiatorial fight but with body horror, but with romance, but with time travel in some way. Um, and we focus down on the character. We look at what 
it means for the human beings to be wearing these giant armors, both literal and, and metaphorical armors in terms of who you, who are you? Who are you who you say you are? Are you who you portray yourself to be? Um, so that kind of uh, 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 twist is what we wanted to do. And so the the genre expectations are certainly formed by my love of the mecha kaiju genre. And then you can you can see Evan's influences very clearly come from uh, a, a lot of the mech media, if you will. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that answers the question, but. Uh, it does, it does. Uh, all right, Matt, Curveball, favorite piece of mech media. Oh, wow. Um, usually I've tried to prep for these. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Voltron. Classic okay. Voltron. That was, that was formative. You know, that was in my formative years. I mean, Pacific Rim is very cool. I've seen, you know, Vangalian. I, and I, I realize that there's considerably better than Voltron, yeah. but I have a, a soft spot for Voltron. Uh, also, yeah, I mean, to be... To be honest, like I didn't mention it, but Power Rangers counts as mech media, I think. It does. So yeah. Um I used to watch Power Rangers uh and I only discovered Voltron long after I'd finished watching Power Rangers and I went like, Oh, so that's where that's where this comes from in a lot of ways. So okay, cool. Also fun, uh Mike Mignola and Duncan Figredo's very recent giant robot Hellboy, just because it's giant robot hellboy fighting kaiju <laughs> that yeah I, i'm having a weird moment here because I, I, I just realized that i'm not a power rangers person like that at all that was after my time but power rangers is mech media and it's tokusatsu and it's teen like slice of life stuff it transcends yeah. genres more than i think i ever gave it credit for yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like you don't it creeps up on you. Like, you know, I, I never think of Power Rangers when I go like, okay, that's my influential mech media. But then I go like, I watched a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, next, real uh, real quick, we're going to get into Universal Monsters, The Creature from the Back Black Lagoon Lives, which you are co-writing with Dan Waters. Yeah. Uh, drawn by Matthew Roberts, colored by Dave Stewart for uh, Skybound. Years after the events of the original film, journalist Kate Marsden hunts for a notorious serial killer in the heart of the Amazon. Hot on the trail of this madman, she soon encounters an unexpected new threat. But is it friend or foe, or is it simply the creature from the Black Lagoon? So how did you end up on this project? Um, I think about three years ago, Alex Antone, who is uh, editor at the, I think chief editor at Skybound, um, got in touch with me uh, and said, hey, we're doing this thing. We've got uh, the rights to the Universal Monsters and, and we're trying to make these books um, that don't necessarily want to take the monsters themselves, but kind of want to tell stories around them, if you will. Um, and When he reached out, he said, I would love to see some pitches. Unfortunately, uh, Dracula is already taken and James is doing it. I was like, <laughs> obviously, you know, James is going to take Dracula and that's fine. My obsession was, I immediately went like, what about Creature from the Black Lagoon? 
because yes, I mean Dracula is this you know hugely significant figure, but um, I think the inherent weirdness of the original creature from the Black Lagoon film, it, the treatment of the creature as this kind of I think it did Lovecraftian entity before love doing Lovecraftian entity was a thing in that it never bothered to explain what the creature was. It never bothered to tell you where it came from or why was it doing the things that it was, it was an entity. It was inexplicable. And uh, in its inexplicable nature, you both abhorred it and fell in love with it. Um, and it immediately kind of spoke to me and I went, oh, I, I kind of want, would love to do this. Um, and for one reason or the other, I think partly because of my schedule, um, eventually I was like, you know, I can't actually do this. Um, and so we just sat there for a little while until Alex came back and he said, you know what, Universal read your pitch, really loved it. Because I had written the pitch on it. Uh, and he said, really loved it. We would still want to do this book. And it was around the time I was already signing uh, my DC exclusive as well. Um, and while that exclusive lets me do creator own things, this isn't creator own. So mm -hmm. I said, you know what? I can't really write it because I'm, I'm signing this contract. Uh, and Alex suggested, hey, you know, I, I was also talking to Dan about doing uh, some universal monster stuff. What if, and the first question he asked, obviously, was also, hey, what about Creature from the Black Lagoon? So uh, what if we get Dan to write this? Would that be cool with you? I said, you know, it's cool with me as long as Dan's okay taking like something uh, uh, I pitched and, and essentially having to base a story off of it, I think he would much rather want to write his own thing. So we approached Dan and I was very careful in asking him like, hey, is this cool? And Dan was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to do it. Um, and so that's kind of how that book came about. The The scripting and the story development is is all Dan. So, so I wouldn't want to uh, uh, take credit for that, but mm -hmm. the, the concept and the idea um and the, the the sort of thematic obsessions of the story are are mine this is this is the second book now that you guys have have you know or coming out you know this close together you two have had some collaboration on what is the the biggest fight you've ever had with him or disagreement the fight might be too extreme a word yeah i don't i don't know i mean we've disagreed on a lot of things but i think Dan is a much more tactful conversationalist than I am. Um, I have my opinions, and they're they're ungainly things that that get pushed into places where they shouldn't be. Uh, whereas Dan, I think, is much more uh, elegant at navigating uh, navigating them. Uh, and so, I don't think I've ever actually had a fight with Dan, um, but we argue all the time about storytelling and and nuance and, and whatnot i think the one that i really remember because it motivated me to actually write a book was uh dan said it was not possible to do interiority in comics because it was an inherently visual medium and doing visual interiority um certainly as a as a writer artist combo is is very difficult um and then i said no no it's very possible to do it and then Anand and I made Blue and Green, which I think 
uh, is an extremely uh, interior uh, window into an interior kind of book. Um, and then I think the second sort of conversation we've had of that nature was I hated what Dan's cadence was with the dialogue in Coffin Bound. And I remember going mm. to him saying like, what is this? Like you, you're you're writing like some kind of beat poetry, Kerouac stuff. I don't I don't get it. Um and he was like, no, no, I'm doing a thing with it. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Looks looks a bit bit try hard. And then the book came out and I read all of it. And I remember uh, you know, I may have ungainly opinions, but I know I know when I'm in the wrong. I remember emailing Dan and going like, oh, I didn't see what you were doing at all, but this is amazing. This is great. I love it. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. So we we talk about storytelling all the time. Uh, I don't know any of them are arguments, but yeah, we have our pitched battles. <laughs> Especially after your statement before about the creature being a, an almost Lovecraftian unknowable thing. Mm -hmm. Do you view it as a more sympathetic creature? No pun intended. I mean, Dracula's coming into your house. He's drinking your blood. The creature, I, I've always sort of taken that as almost a colonialism uh, analogy because it's, you mm -hmm. know, these people are coming into its mm -hmm. home and screwing around and now it's like and and also the view of the the locals of the unknown as a creature i've i've always had a kind of that view and i i doubt it was intentional because i don't think mm. that that was what universal was thinking back at that point but nonetheless i i ramble what is the level of sympathy you might view that the creature with versus dracula say i mean i view dracula with a lot of sympathy as well um Partly because it's such a such a seductive character. Can you blame a creature for its nature? Uh, do you not have sympathy for things that want to eat you and yet live in the wild? Uh, and so I think there there are interesting questions there as well. But I think the creature is to me, and these are things I take from it, and and I think that is necessarily by design. Uh, at least with the film, is that it's meant to be uh, a mirror, a void, and and this is true of a lot of Lovecraftian stories. Certainly, is you're not you're not supposed to be able to assign these values to that entity. Uh, you don't view it with sympathy. You don't view it with abhorrence. It is a mirror, and whatever you view it is because essentially you're viewing yourself in some ways. Um, and so I think that is why the characters in that film react to the creature the way they do, because they are reacting to their own obsessions, their own fears, their own, uh, seductions, uh, of the unknown, of, of the, uh, unknowable, of the, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the dark, uh, of promise of fame and treasure, but also promise of fear and and danger. Um, and I think that led to a very interesting question when I was trying to come up with a with a pitch for this: is what would the creature reflect 
now, as, as opposed to if it was a mirror that you were looking into when the film first came out. And if you looked into the same mirror now, what would you think of yourself as, as humanity, as, as, and, and these are multiple questions, right? As someone, as a, as a, as a, uh, a species that has explored this world to a point where the unknowable and the unknown have shrunk down in, in so many ways, um, or at least we would like to think so. Uh, and uh, as, as a race where we've managed to turn places of darkness and, and seduction and magic and fantasy into, you know, let's, let's cut down the trees in the rainforest and turn them into cheap Swedish furniture for everyone to sit on. Um, and so what would the creature think of us now? Um, what do we think of ourselves now in, in a lot of ways? And I think that, kind of sits underneath the the overt uh, uh, parts of the story. Um, and so here you have the journalist who is obsessed with something that happened to her in the past. Here you have the killer who loves to drown people who has clearly heard of this legend. Here you have, I, I don't want to spoil it, but characters from the film that are still obsessed with the creature. And here you have the locals who used to be who used to be the type to to fear the Black Lagoon and now wonder how close they can get so that they can chop down some trees. Um, and so I think that kind of change is interesting to interrogate, certainly in light of this kind of, it is whatever you want it to be, it means whatever you want it to mean kind of uh, uh, storytelling. Moving on to yet another project, uh... We're entering Act 3 of your Detective Comics opus, Gotham Nocturne, a mm -hmm. run that is 21 issues and counting, plus a couple issues of Night Terrors by Dan Waters, there's that name again, that feature uh, characters from the run. Uh, that's an impressive run in a time when a lot of runs for big two superheroes are about a year, and especially impressive as it feels like, well, a musical piece with motifs and reprises. But I'm curious, has the tale grown in the telling? Or are you pretty much where the plan was for this run? Um, my original pitch document had 28 to 30 issues written in it. And I think by the time we finish this run, it will be pretty much on the dot 30 issues. If you consider the fact that we had a 40-page annual and a 40-page and a opening issue of, of Outlaw. Um, and so... Yeah, it, it, very much by design. Um, the tale could have grown, but I think we were also intending to tell the story as design, and so it didn't. It didn't need to. Things things went pretty close to how I thought they would go. So, and um, to to add to that, to the idea of the run being you know, 30 issues as compared to a lot of books being about a year long. Um, when I first came on to this project, I very publicly stated that this was going to be me trying to do something that was relatively long form uh, compared to pretty much everything else I had done had been five or six issue minis uh, with the exception of 
two things, uh, Catwoman and Swamp Thing, which were both around the 12 to 16 issue range. Um, so yeah, five graduated to about 12 to 16, and then 12 to 16 graduated to about 30 with this. Um, but it takes an exceptionally um, intent, intentful construction and mind to, for me, to stick with something for 30 issues because my brain's like, oh, next new cool shiny thing. Um, and so I think having that design in place was very useful because it let, because I knew what I was going to do next and I was excited about it rather than you know, like, okay, guess I need to write another issue of this run, however long it's going to be. Um, my brain doesn't work that way. So it was very much designed to be this long. You've worked with a lot of amazing artists on the run. Uh, how have those collaborations come together? Has DC given you a list of who's available or have you brought in uh, some of the collaborators yourself? Uh, a mixture of both. Uh, I think sometimes uh, it was a matter of DC going like, hey, you know, I talked to this person and they're looking to do something. And they sometimes artists were like, I've read this run and I would really like to be part of it. Um, and, and so there was that excitement of like, oh, cool, someone wants to actually contribute to this and is excited to do it. So um, you always want to work with people who who want to sort of work on the run. Uh, and so it was that uh, it was that with with a couple of artists. Um, I think with Rafa, it was really funny uh, who, who started the, the run off with me. It was really funny because um, we were kind of we had talked to a couple of other artists and we thought that one of them was coming on board until they were like, oh, actually, I can't start now. And then we were a month and a half away from having to write, uh, create the first issue. And we were like, we need to look for an artist. Let's start asking some people. And then lit quite literally, four days after I had turned in the first script, um, I got a DM from my editor, uh, who was Jessica Chen at the time. Uh, and she went, out of complete random nowhere while scrolling through Instagram, I saw Rafa was posting stuff. And so I reached out to him and he says he would love to do it. So utter and complete luck. And and what an artist to, to start off like a dark sort of operatic run with. Um, Ivan Reese, I think was suggested by Ben Abernathy um, uh, who, and, and Ivan had worked on the detective comics run before mine as well. And again, just incredible, incredible work. Um, I think the no I, I've lost count of the number of people who came up and said, "Oh, I've seen Ivan's work before, but it looks different. It looks it's like doing something interesting here." And I think Ivan is one of those artists who's kind of been on some level waiting for someone to come and go, like do this weird operatic people in gowns thing, uh, and and he loved it. Um, and then. Uh, on, on bringing people in, uh, Jason Sean Alexander was someone I had very early on asked for, and, and his schedule did not work at the time. Um, but then he reached out uh, right before Outlaw, and he said, hey, I can do five or six issues, so do you want to work on something? Um, and it fit, um, got him on board for Outlaw, and it worked. Very early on, the arc that I'm writing right now 
uh, or just finished writing actually uh, the arc of with Batman in the Desert was uh, going to be Evan Cagle on art um, but again partly because of Don Runner partly because Evan was still sort of getting his feet into into comics he was like I don't know if I want to commit to doing issues on a monthly schedule um, and so then we reached out to Ricardo Federici uh, for this art and that was a case of me going like no 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 it's a very specific kind of art uh arc and it needs a very specific kind of artist um and so you know i had my fingers crossed and then ben mears who's the editor on the book now reached out to ricardo and it worked out perfectly fine so yeah it's been a case of a mixture uh, and i've been just like gleeful in being able to collaborate with these guys um the next artist was uh, is is going to be Javier Fernandez uh who like it just blows my mind who reached out to me and went like I want to work on your detective run can we do that uh and so yeah uh, it's it's been really lovely yeah is what I'm trying to say on top of those collaborations uh there's also the backups from Cy Spurrier and Dan Waters that yeah. guy, uh, that flesh out different characters from the main narrative. Yeah. How have those collaborations worked? Yeah, I think um, it's kind of funny seeing the number of people who are who are who talk about the backups like it's some revolutionary idea. They go like, ah, the backups are not just backups; they're they tie into the main story, and they and frankly, this was born off of my frustration with uh, writing the backups. Uh, on a couple of occasions in a couple of different books um, because I think the internet encourages people who love to complain, right? So you get people who don't like the backups, who love the main story, who are annoyed at having to pay for extra pages of the backup. They complain. And then you get people who love the backups, don't like the main story, and go, why am I paying so much for a main story when all I'm reading is the backup? And these are the only two people who come out onto the internet to talk about the book. And so it leads to this vibe of such negativity about the book when it's things aren't that bad. And, and I kind of wanted to address that. I went like, it doesn't have to be that way. What if reading the backups felt rewarding to those people who were reading the main story? And what if, if you were really excited of the uh, for the backup, it was because of what was happening in the main story. That way, you were essentially only encouraging people to feel good things about the backup. Um, and so we tried it that way. Uh, it involved a little bit of work on my end in terms of going to Sai early on and Adan and saying, like, this is my plan for the main story. I think we should focus on this character and I need this thing to happen in the backups. The rest of it is up to you. Uh, and I think that collaboration worked out really well because it also gives uh, writers like Sai and Dan uh, uh, an idea of like, this is your box. Now you can play inside of it. And I think it's an interesting storytelling challenge to have when you're like, okay, I have a point A and a point B and I have a character, but everything is everything else is up to me. So, yeah, I think it's led to some very interesting collaborations, very interesting stories. I'm super chuffed with how the backups have added to the sense of the main story feeling bigger than it is. 
your cast on this run is impressively large and there are so many story threads to discuss with different characters. But one of the ones that I'm most excited to see is Renee Montoya embracing the role of the question again, while also wrestling with, well, the question of whether a cop should be a vigilante as well. Uh, can you speak to where that particular story thread came from from you? Well, you know, the question puns uh, have been very entertaining, I have to say, before I get into the answer. Um, yeah, um, I've always been obsessed with the question as a character, just thematically, um, because I, I find it to be a very fascinating distinction, right? Why is the question... How is the question different from Batman? They're both detectives. They're both vigilantes. They're both, you know, pursuing. And that's where I think the difference comes in. Batman is a detective, but his pursuit eventually is of justice. Uh, I think questions pursuit necessarily by design, by name, has to be of the truth. And I think truth and justice are, are distinct things. And sometimes as we've seen in, in the Nolan films, you sacrifice the truth because you are pursuing justice. And I think as the question, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be pursuing the truth, which I think oddly you see reflected in Moore's treatment of Rorschach in, in Watchmen more than the question, uh, at least contemporary iterations of questions the question itself. And so, this is what I kind of wanted to do with the plot was I wanted to say, okay, while Batman is entwined with his pursuit of the idea of justice in a changing city, in a changing Gotham, um, where you can forget truths conveniently uh, so that you can live a content life, but you cannot forget Injustice. Do you see what I mean? So, so, so Batman's pursuing that line of thought, and I said, I said, wouldn't it be interesting then to have a, a philosophically different point of view, also pursuing their own line of thought and arriving essentially to a similar conclusion, or, or at least to the same point in the plot? So the question, who starts off, uh, at least in this case with Montoya being a cop, essentially as a as a meter and and a a a uh, steward of justice who realizes that her idea of justice is so flawed in a, in a city that is willing to forget truths to have convenience that she must once again turn her mind to the pursuit of the truth rather than rather than justice um and i think that led me to writing this sort of journey of like, why did I become a cop? What did I want when I was a cop? Am I still getting that? Is this what I signed up for? What do I what do I do when being a cop involves rules that are betraying the idea of truth, um, betraying the idea of the truth being important? Uh, and so she kind of goes back to her her roots in a lot of ways and says, okay, before I was a cop, I was a detective. And when I was a detective, my pursuit was that of the truth. Can I still do that? 
maybe I can with a mask on. So, um, so that's kind of where the idea of involving the question came in. Um, and to continue with the question puns, I think the more interesting question is not why a cop would decide to be a vigilante. More interesting question I wish more people would ask, I, I wish more people in law enforcement would ask is, why would a cop decide to continue being a cop the way they way things are? Um, and, and so I think if more people in law enforcement ask these questions of themselves, we wouldn't need people to wear masks. Is there a non-spoilery something you can tease for Act 3? Um, yeah, it's an act of, uh, of revelations um, for several characters, including Batman, who questions his motivation, his desires for why he does what he does. Uh, and I think... It's part of the part of the philosophical obsession this run has been leaning towards, which is what is the purpose of Batman? What is the design? What is what is his place in a Gotham that wants to forget him, that changes, that doesn't need him anymore, you know? Um and I think that question comes to a head and we arrive at some sort of an answer. An answer that I like. We'll see, we'll see how people react to it. When all this is said and done, and, and I don't say this with any sort of insight or knowledge into how DC's collected editions department works, but the, presumptively at the end of this story or a few months after, there's a nice hardcover omnibus collecting this entire saga. Have you decided how you're going to display that? Um, well, there will be another frame that goes up on my wall for sure. <laughs> um, but no, I love, I love the... Um, omnibuses um i just love the idea that and this is this is the kid in me never in a million years would i would i have considered that i will have a run that is collected uh and available so people can read it in one go um yeah just still surreal to me um that you know in france when i was there for paris uh fan expo People had hardbound collections of the Swamp Thing, all 16 issues. Uh, very beautiful French uh, hardcover edition. And yeah, every time I look at it, there's a part of me that just goes like, what? Is this real? Did you just put this together? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah, that part of, that part of things uh, I will always view with a measure of fascination and glee. Uh, and you teased recently. You're already working on on your your next D, uh, DC thing after Tech's rap, uh, Tech wraps with uh, Ananda Arke. Yes, yes. Um, we've just started work on it. Uh, it's I keep telling people it's one of those things that every writer has when they first start working in comics. Is like I'm gonna take this obscure character that no one knows. I'm gonna do a do a take on it that potentially kind of entirely reframes how people think of this character. I'm going to do an animal man. I'm going to do a swamp thing. Um, and then you get into comics and you realize that that's a terrible pitch for you to make as a first, like very early writer. Um, partly because 
no one knows who you are. And so your own obscurity tied together with the obscurity of the character itself is not a great recipe for sales. And so publishers are less <laughs> likely to accept a pitch like that. Um, and then the, the second problem is, of course, everyone assumes they are the next Vertigo writer. Uh, and, and yeah, maybe your take isn't as revolutionary as you thought it was. Uh, and, and so, uh, I've had to temper my expectations. I had this pitch first in 2019 when I, when I talked to Jamie Rich about it and his reaction was like, I have no idea what you just pitched to me, but it sounds cool. Um, and so it has taken this long partly for my own obscurity to dwindle and, and my, my recognizability to rise to an extent, and also partly for me, be, me to be able to convince my editors at DC that, no, 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 this actually works. I know what I'm doing here. Um, and, and, you know, I hope that my work goes some way towards proving that I can actually pull it off. So very excited to start on it. Uh, it's an idea that ties a lot of my own storytelling obsessions into the DCU. Um, obviously I did some of this with the Swamp Thing where I took like Hindu mythology and, and the sort of metaphysical ideas from there, translated them to a, a DC character. But this one does that a little bit more overtly. Um, and I feel, and this, this is part of the joy of working in comics. I feel like with this character, um, I found a thing that you would only think of if you had the background in in Hindu mythology as as I do. But then the moment you think of that, you go like, "Oh, this is such a wonderfully um, cool take on what this character's mechanism already is." But it's just, yeah, it's just that confluence of like here's a cool mechanism and here's a way to look at it that nobody else has thought about. Uh, and it does this wonderful new thing for the character. So I know I'm talking in riddles, but um, yeah, we'll talk once the, once the actual series is announced. So certainly, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, do you have any uh, signings or appearances coming up as you have all these uh, books to promote? I mean, I would love to say yes, um, but thanks to the wonderfully adequate uh, postal department here in the UK, they've lost they've lost my travel document, so oh I can't my. actually travel anywhere until I get a replacement document. Which get this could take anywhere between six weeks to six months. So um, yeah, I have no idea if I can actually be anywhere I intended to be. Uh, which would be the third year in a row that I'm disappointing some people. So please, if you're hearing this podcast and you've been asking me for an appearance for three years, I apologize. I can only say yes once I have my travel document. But also help <laughs> find his travel documents. Maybe look in your couch cushions. Maybe they're there. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're, I've had to report them lost and therefore they are no longer functional. Just a piece of plastic now. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, basically, I had to send it to to get my driver's license over over the holidays, and then I waited. Jan went by. It's like, guys, you sending it back? They were like, yeah, yeah, we sent it back in early December. Never got it. Like, oops, got lost in the mail. I guess. Atrocious. A little bit. 
so penultimate question. Uh, what are you reading right now? Um, I have just started getting into a bunch of uh, novellas. Um, Brian Evanson, who is a very, very cool horror writer, um, sci-fi horror mix. Um, I'm reading some of his short stories and novellas that he put out through Tor. Um, I read his Last Days, uh, and I absolutely fell in love with it. So um, I'm catching up on a bunch of those. Um, I'm also reading The Reformatory by Tananariva Due. I think that's her name. I don't know how you pronounce it, so sorry for butchering it. Um, but, but yeah, I'm just kind of looking to get into short prose again. I haven't read uh, short stories or novellas in a while, so uh, getting back into those. Um, I'm keeping up with Hickman. Uh, so uh, I'm reading the new Ultimate Spider-Man, and I was keeping up with Gods. Um, and then um, of the things I read most recently, uh, since we've been talking about Dan Waters, everyone should go read Dan Waters' Seasons Have Teeth, a wonderful book. Uh, and then also everyone should go read 20th Century Men from Denise Campbell, another wonderful book. Um, yeah, I think that, that about covers it. I'm also starting to go through the two giant omnibuses of Starman that I've been meaning to to start and read. Uh, I haven't actually read, I've only read bits and pieces of it. I haven't read the whole thing in, in one go, so uh, I'm going to get into that. Um, and I recently reread uh, Saman Overture, uh, Gaiman and, and J.H. Williams, uh, I'd already read it, but J.H. Williams' art is so incredible. Uh, obviously, I love Cayman as a, as a creator as well, but the art is so incredible that I keep going back to that book just to be like, hmm, I want to look at some pretty things to before I start laying out these pages. So, Well, Ram, this has been a fantastic time. Uh, final question as we release you back into the world. How can people follow you online and keep up with everything you got going on? Um, I'm still on Twitter, uh, as the thing crashes and burns into a, a pit of despair. Um, but, uh, uh, so that's probably the best place to, to catch me online, but I will be, I keep saying this, I'll be better about my newsletter. So, uh, if like me, you are intending to wean yourself off of, uh, Twitter a little bit, then probably my newsletter is the best place to, to catch up. Uh, otherwise, yeah, just. If you're interested, read my work, uh, catch me on podcasts and chats and whatnot. Um, yeah, I've got lots of books coming up this year. So uh, appreciate all the all the love and support. All right, Ram, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for taking the time and, and reading and um, asking all these thoughtful questions. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A 
and a shout out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.